Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's show is an opportunity to hear about a very different style of book in the education sphere. This one has the look and feel of a graphic novel. The story is told through the voices of students and staff involved in re-examining what education can look like. Our guest on today's show is Joanne McKechn, or JoJo as many of us know her. She's a leading voice in the global education community, having worked within the New Zealand Ministry of Education before starting her own consulting company called The Learner First. She's worked in more than 10 countries, helping educators and education systems move towards deeper outcomes for students. Her approach to school and system-wide reform is as refreshing to education as her book is to the education genre. Jojo has coined the term contributive learning. We're going to hear more about that in this podcast. Really happy to have you here, Joanne. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, Jen. Joe, you've been doing so much work for, for many years. Um, the listeners probably don't know your background. So tell us a little bit about the work that you were doing in New Zealand. You're originally a, uh, originally and always a Kiwi, uh, living in Seattle, Washington for the last uh, 10 years. But tell us about uh, your education journey starting in New Zealand. Let me just start off, Jen. Um, maybe I'll start introducing myself in Māori. So, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Joanne te iwi. And the reason I do that, Jen, is because I'm a very proud Kiwi. I'm a proud Ngātahu um, woman, um, a wahini warrior from New Zealand. And that means that um, I'm from, I'm part Māori. And um, I hail from a country called Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is, in, in translation, that's the land of the long white cloud. Um, I was raised and born in New Zealand and lived there for the first 45 years of my life and spent um, all of that time in education. I'm from a family of educators and we're a storytelling family. Um, I'm from seven children and all of us, all of us had something to do with education. My father was a principal. My mother was an early childhood educator. Five of my siblings trained as teachers and the other two were in service orientation um, careers as well. So I think all of us have this bent towards wanting to serve our, serve our fellow human, human beings. And I trained early on as a teacher and became a principal at a very young age and then moved into the Ministry of Education and became a regional manager, which is equivalent to a superintendent in, the, in North America. Um, my first regional job, I was in charge of the Bay of Plenty region, which had sort of 250 schools and 400 early childhood centres. We combined early childhood education with um, um, K-12 education system in New Zealand. Um, I really enjoyed all of that work and, and was very instrumental in sort of working with um, Māori education as well. We looked at, we have two separate education systems that, that work together hand in hand in New Zealand um, as a result of our Treaty of Waitangi, where we work in a bicultural country. So we have two, two different curricula in New Zealand. One is Māori and one is in English, where they're not a translation of each other. So one is written by Māori for Māori with Māori, and one is written, run, one is written with the English culture. So I did spend some time in that, and then I moved into um, working for the, the National Ministry of Education or the, or the Countrywide Educational Ministry of Education and um, worked with um, families and families in whānau or families in the wider education system, how do we engage parents in education. 
I spent a few years working in that sort of region and looked look really carefully at how do we how do parents um, support the education system. It was a really exciting time for me because I got to work with groups of parents all over the country. Um, and then finally, my last job before I left New Zealand, I was in charge of the student achievement function, which was the development of how do we really support students across the country who have been least served or who have not engaged with the education. And usually it's because of what the system has been doing, not so much of what, what's been going on with the kids. And um, within that role, I had um, sort of carte blanche to work globally to look at what was happening around the rest of the world and how could we utilise all of that information across, the, across our own country. And um, we developed a, a team of people who were 50 top educators from around our country and working within the schools. We looked at redesigning all of our professional development for the country, all of the networks of um, leaders across the country, and then also how did we how did we provide what are the programs that actually work for all of our students? And what we really looked at there was how do we individualise learning for kids who who need it the most? And I think at that point I understood that that education is not about educating the masses. Education is about educating each individual person. And one of the things that we learned about the the programs, the literacy programs, was the idea of starting off with each and individual, every individual child, mm-hmm. looking at what they do know as opposed to what they don't know and building on those skills. And I think the second mm-hmm. thing that we learned is that the approach to um, um, sharing those literacy programs was very much based on community involvement, parental involvement, uh, professional learning communities within the schools. So I think uh, New Zealand has had a good impact on on what all of us are doing in our, our education systems today. Yeah, I agree. And I think partly what, what, we th- what we do in New Zealand is also we think about the whole child and the community that they come from and the culture that they live in and, and who are they? And I think start from that point of view. And I think that's really, really important. I think you can't t- take away a person from who they are. And I think in so many education systems globally, we try and do that because we think that we need to fill them full of information that is important, but we forget to start with that person first. And I think that's all of my work has been around that. So who are we first? And then add to that rather than try and sort of say, okay, well, that's, that information is not important or what you know is not important. What we want to tell you is important. And I think if we if we forget who we are, then we lose immediately because we turn people away from education. And actually, education is really about our life and who we are as people. And how do we build on that rather than say that's not okay and we want to turn you into something else? It's really a case of who are you and how do we build on that? In many ways, New Zealand was ahead of the the trend because certainly the discussion recently uh, has just been heightened about that whole concept of equity and equity of outcomes. And how do we make sure that our education systems are really designed to help every learner to acknowledge who they are and to build on that. Um, and it, it, you know, you were doing that work, the fact that New Zealand has two separate uh, curriculum, one for Maori and one for um, uh, the English community or based on the English culture is a really interesting concept. And a lot of countries can learn from that. Mm, and I think because it's not a direct translation, I think that's the key because it's the recognition that we are all different and each culture can hold their own culture and identity and still we will live within the same space because we can recognise and accept who we are and contribute to a, to a culture that can be unified and united together, which is an amazing, an amazing experience. Fast forward now, you've been in the, in the U.S. for the last 10 years and doing really interesting work, uh, both with New Pedagogies for Deep Learning and for uh, your consulting company, The Learner First. And how has... How has that background from New Zealand influenced the work that you've been doing over the last decade? 
I think um, for me, Jen, it's been really important to consider that the the premise from which most of my work has come from is based on equity, and it comes from the idea that if children can show what they know in the way that they want to show it, then we can create an equitable system, and that stems from assessment and measurement for me. So, so much of my work has been grounded in the concept of equity and assessment, and that sounds kind of an unusual combination because usually assessment is based on testing, and it's based on standardization and it's based on, 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 you know, we've had a huge move towards formative assessment recently. But for me, it's around if people can show what they know in the way they choose to show it, then we're starting to move towards a different way of understanding. So I started um, in New Zealand writing learning progressions and writing um, rubrics that really help people to understand what success looked like. So in the, in, when I was writing... Um, for the student achievement fund, created a series of rubrics that described what conditions the system needed to be successful. And people could plot their progress on that and then start to look for where they wanted to go. When we started um, New Pedagogies for Deep Learning, I was I led the design team and the writing team to create the tools for the suite of tools for New Pedagogies for Deep Learning. And we wrote the tools that described the system for what it could look like, plus a set of design tools to help redesign what learning would look like. And then the um, success, the um, outcomes for what it would look like for deep learning to occur for children. And so we tested those out across the countries that we were working with globally, and they really started to take effect. And simultaneously, what I was doing was with my own company, The Learner First, we were writing learning progressions, we were writing um, system design tools, and we were writing capability rubrics to really help understand for the United States and other countries we were working with as well, a set of tools that would help them try and cover that as well. So what I've really figured out, I think, over all of the systems that I've been working with in all of the different countries is that there are three sort of common themes around assessment that really count. But it's not just about student achievement. It's about system achievement and about system success too. So there are three different areas that really count. The first one is around the system conditions. So I talk about the capabilities of a system to measure itself. And unless we measure our own success as a system, then we're really challenging students to be successful in a system that we don't know is working itself. So what I do is I write, um, I help systems to discover what does it take for their own system to be successful and we write descriptions for them so they can measure their own success. So that's the first section is describing what does a system take to be successful and help them measure their own success. The second set is around the design. So what are the tools that you need to help change? Because if you're trying to change and you don't have any way to do that and you don't know how to do that and you don't know what success looks like for you in that space, it's really impossible. And that's when teachers feel overwhelmed. That's when leaders feel overwhelmed because they can't find a pathway and it feels that old adage of, here's an elephant and I'm trying to eat it all in one go. So they need a pathway or a way to describe how am I going to get there. So that's the second set of tools that they need. And the final set is that what are the outcomes that you need? to actually measure and what, what do kids actually want to be in this world now? And so I've moved completely away from describing curriculum outcomes to actually competency-based outcomes. And these are around, the first one is around self-understanding, knowing who you are, like what do you need to be your best person? And that's for everybody in the system, not just kids. Second one is around connections. How do you, you need to, how do you connect yourself, your school, your community, knowing your purpose and the wider world? Third one's around knowledge. What, what knowledge do you need to be the person you need to be to grow up to be? For a long time there, we tried to get everybody to go to university. We tried to get everybody to be the same sort of academic. But actually, that's not what everyone wants to be. We know that there are going to be artists. We know that there are going to be scientists. We know that there are going to be chefs. We know that there are going to be really people who are going to go across a whole wide spectrum. So we don't want everybody to be the same. 
And then the final one in that series of outcomes is around competency. What are those competencies you need to learn and return to the world? And so those are the four outcomes. So there's sort of those, those set of three things, the, the system competencies or the system capabilities that you need, the design tools that you need, and the outcomes that we need from the system itself. And so when I work with any country or any system, I'm looking all of the time for those three spaces. Do they have tools to help them in those three areas to really understand how to shift their system? In doing that, um, each one of those systems is different. Each community is different. And so no, tool, no sets of tools have to be the same. They can be tweaked to meet the needs of each system. Because I think, Jen, for a long time, we all thought we had to be the same and we all had to pass the same tests and we all had to learn the same knowledge to be equitable. But that's actually a fallacy. Jojo, what I've loved about uh, your work, and um, it's reflective of a number of us in, in that space, but that idea of really broadening what does what does learning mean? What does learning and well-being mean? What do education systems um, have to, to contribute? And what I like is your interpretation that when you say system conditions, it could be the system of a national system of education, it could be a school district's culture, or it could be right down at the school level. What is What are the conditions that have to happen at the individual school to make that type of learning and interaction happen? And I've seen you work at those three different levels, and it's highly effective at all three levels. There's a parallel there, and I think that's reassuring to the teacher in the classroom. It's reassuring to the school principal, and it's reassuring to the policymakers way up at the top of the system that are trying to get that cohesion and coherence happening in their in their education systems. I used to teach a class. It was called One Day School for Gifted Children. And I used to take two classes. One of them was for English-speaking students and one of them was for Māori-speaking students because giftedness in both of those cultures looks quite different. So what I did, though, I was, I was in Auckland, which was a, another city away from where our, our capital city in New Zealand was, and I flew the students down, both, both, both sets of students on different days, down to watch government speak. And, and what was really fascinating was that students were really were really horrified at watching government debate because, as, as you can imagine, when you watch government's debate, their behaviour is not always um, as um, you would want adults to behave because they yell at each other and they're not always um, as polite as they could be. And I'm being very pleasant when I'm saying that. And I think what, what, what we all understood, and these, these kids were about 12 years old at the time, and, and we, we had a really frank and open discussion about how, how people at different layers of society uh, leading countries who are behaving and who, who, you know, how we expect people to be. And what was really evident at that point of my life, and I think I was probably about 20, 28, 29, and the kids were, you know, 12 or 13. And we all talked about that everybody is doing the best they can with the knowledge they have at any given point in time. And there's an expectation of people at all layers of society that they should be better than other people at different points in their life. And what we recognise that nobody is, we're all trying to do the very best we can at any point in time. So the expectation of people who are leading society is that they should be better than other people. And there's, there's, there's no such thing as that. Everybody is trying to be the best they can. So what we have to do is expect that each one of us needs the same set of, needs, needs tools to help us at any point in our lives. And so the expectation is that my belief is that we all are trying to do the right thing. So we all need help at different times and we all need each other to do that. And so that when I speak to somebody who's a principal, I speak the same way do I speak to a principal that I would to a prime minister of a country, because we're all humans and we all need to care about each other and we all need to work together to create a different society that we're wanting to live in, because what we've done in the past has not worked. 
So therefore, we need to train, change the way we treat each other, and we need to change the way we talk to each other, and we need to do so with care and compassion and with the, the understanding that everybody has got is trying to do the right thing, but somehow we've got into a system that has allowed a hierarchical way of being that gives other people power over each other. And really, it's actually at the community level and at the talking level and at the, at the team level and at the system level, at whatever little level that is, as you say, at the school, at the district, at the, at the you know, political level, we're all just a group of people trying to figure this out together. And I think the other, the other point I'll make there is, is that the tools that I write are ones that create an opportunity to talk to each other. They don't say what you have to do. What they do is they describe what success could look like and the opportunity is for groups of people to talk about what does that mean to them and to create a common understanding and a common language around those tools to decide what does that mean for this group of people. And it's open to interpretation. And any set of words is open to interpretation. It's up to that group of people to decide what does it mean for us and then what evidence do we need as a group of people to decide that that is happening in our system. And I think in the past everybody has said or experts or global experts who people who have thought that they've known what it looks like have said that's what it should be. And actually nobody's got the right to do that to anyone anymore. We all have to determine ourselves what that should look like. Um, let's turn towards the book. You you wrote a really interesting book and, and you know, you're an accomplished author. Um, one of the things that I've really appreciated over the, the past number of years is that um, as you create your work, you put it out uh, sometimes in a book that's been written just by you or with co-authors. And uh, we've, we've all learned from that. This book is different. Uh, the Depthville uh, Detectives and the Great Education Crisis it has a very different look and feel to it. There is some commonalities but there's some differences tell us about the book it's 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 a really interesting book you know, life is faster now and you know some of the books i've written are really long and they're really arduous to read through and you have to go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards whereas this is a fast read you can read it in an hour and a half and so when you when you're when you're just sitting there for a, a quiet afternoon you can read it and then you can go back and forwards and look at the tools if you want to and i think you're right kids would want to read this too because it's about kids and it's kids taking taking control of their own education. They can make decisions themselves about what they want to look at and what they want to investigate in themselves. It's teaching people to be in control of their own learning. And that's what it's about. I think, you know, for me, when I talk about assessment, I talk about self-assessment is the most important thing because we make decisions about our lives when we leave school. Nobody else tells us what to do. So if kids can start to do this now while they're at school, then they can start to be deciders of their own destiny really and so if kids pick up this book they can learn how to do this now if teachers pick up this book they can learn how to do this now if educators and leaders pick up this book they can learn how to do this now so it's and it's a fun one to read it's got cartoon characters in it you'll see it's sort of it's, it's a pleasant a pleasant book to read with a lot of meaning it's kind of got a moral purpose to it but it also is a joy to read and you can see how people can go through different experiences and learn from it at the same time so it's it's kind of going back to an old storytelling storytelling um, with, with a moral, I guess, and it sort of helps people to, you know, relate to something that's going on in their life right now that's of a crisis, but how to get through it and how to find a pathway through something that's really challenging in your life. From a content standpoint, Jojo, you really advanced this whole concept of contributive learning. And, um, you know, just based on what's been happening over the last six months, 
even to a greater extent, you know, I think people are thinking of that concept, you know, how do we give back? How do we help move societies forward? You advance kind of a, a four-step process of self-understanding, knowledge, competency, and connection. Can you tell us a little bit about those pieces? Yeah, those are the sort of outcomes that I think that the world is really craving for at the moment. I think we've we've spent a long time looking at knowledge or academics as being an outcome from education, and that's got us to a certain point. And we can look at technology and science and things like that to see that they've taken us a long way. What we've missed is we've we've sort of forgot who we are. And I think, you know, when I go to self-understanding, let me talk about that one first. And I've been doing a lot of workshops with, with leaders and teachers recently around well-being. And I do a lot of work on, on well-being globally. It's a, it's, a, it's a really big area for my work. And what I've noticed is, is that people are forgetting about themselves because they've been trying so hard to work and work and get, you know, buy a house and build, you know, build their families and look after themselves. But they forget about taking care of who they are as a person. And so for me, it's like, um, doing these workshops, I've seen so much sadness coming out of teachers and, you know, sort of, you know, people have said teachers are burning out, but I don't say they're burning out. I say that they are, that they are, they've got that dissonance inside them because they know they want to do the right thing for kids. And it's about self-understanding, but they're forgetting to look after themselves too, because they're working too hard. Kids are working too hard. We're all working too hard. This pandemic has given us a pause to think about this. So self-understanding means who are you? Figuring out yourself. What do you need to be you? What's your best person? How do you con- how do you fit into your own life? You know what what makes you feel good? How do you connect with somebody else? Like what what's important to you? Who's in your family? Where do you belong? What's your culture? What's your language? What's your identity? Um, you know what, what what makes you feel good about you? How do you how do you enjoy your life? What do you want for you? And then those are some questions that we don't often talk about at school. We we learn about other cultural groups. We learn about other countries. We learn about what's going on in technology. We learn about different. Um, languages we learn about all these things that we sometimes forget about ourselves so self-understanding first and foremost know yourself first then you can stand tall in your own language or culture and identity and I talk about kids should not need to leave their culture at the gate and pick it up on the way out they should bring their whole person to school and every teacher should bring their whole person to school because we are who we are the second one is around connection so connect to yourself connect to your family know about how to understand how to connect and that can be communicating in lots of different ways it's connecting within your school does everybody know who each other is often when I take a um, professional session with teachers that you know sometimes teachers within their own school don't know each other very well the kids in the classroom don't know each other very well and these are opportunities to learn about life learn about each other how to connect with each other then there's the technology connection then there's the connection to your purpose in life what do you what do you want to do with your life who do you want to be how do you want to how do you want to present to the world what career do you want to have so it's like learning of these things. Instead of, instead of asking kids who do they want to be when they grow up, it's actually about who do you want to connect to in your life? Who do you want to be for you? Not so much what do you want to be first. It's like those are the sorts of questions that we've spent too much time thinking about. And the third one's around knowledge. <clears throat> and we've, we've sort of said to everybody, you've all got to become, you know, you've got to get your, go through school and get all qualified. But there are kids who, who have been really challenged by that because the qualifications that we've been offering haven't not been suiting them. And for them, it's been a real challenge and we've been losing kids' lives. And I think what we've got to do is really think about who are they and what do they, what's their best, best knowledge that they need to be them and to be a little bit more forgiving around that. And I'm not saying don't have high expectations. I'm saying have the highest expectations of all, but love the kids for who they are and what they want to be. And don't expect them to be the people that we want them to be, but let them be the people they want to be and allow them to be them. And often I give the example of parents who have twins. And, and often the twins 
have want to have different career paths or different people, and you would never give them the exact same experiences in life because you know them well enough to know they're different. And yet, when we put kids in school, we try and give them the exact same curriculum because we think they we should give them the opportunity to experience everything. But actually, that's not necessarily what they need. So it's being human around it. And then the last one's around competency. What are those competencies that we need to help kids unlock their knowledge, unlock their connections, unlock their self-understanding so they can learn and return to give back to humanity so that they can contribute what their unique talent is to give back to the world? So I sort of think about that. What is What are those, what are those ones? And I talk about those competencies as you know, being able to be committed that they can follow through all the way to the end of doing something. When you start something, you can go to the end of it so that they can, um, they can collaborate, that they can be creative, that they can communicate, that they can think critically, all of those sorts of things. And I think those four outcomes are the ones that we're looking at. So they're much broader than academics, so that they're much broader than just self-understanding. They cover the whole range of things. And I think those are the sort of areas that, that if you look across many of the the um, models that, that, that um, many of the organisations are putting out, they're much broader than knowledge. They're much broader than just competency. They go across the range so that we see a deepening of understanding of who humanity is and an allowance of culture and being who you are to actually contribute to the world. And I think when we start to do that, we, we, take, we start to take away the competition to be better than other people. And what we want to see is being the best you can be, which then allows you to contribute in a unique way rather than having to be better than another person which is what, what we've sort of been, we've been working on the premise of before. I think you've done a really good job, Jojo, of um, with your contributive learning to design and to, to, to kind of describe how the elements work together. Uh, in education systems up until a little while ago, we were really focusing on student achievements. So that learning, academic learning, et cetera. And, and I think in the last five or 10 years, we've done a good job of shifting to acknowledge that learning and well-being work together. I think what you've added mm. with your um, uh, definition of contributive learning is what happens afterwards. If we do a good job with, yeah. with um, uh, having learning and well-being interacting, then students can do something with it. Uh, yeah. They can, it's almost the action part of or the result of if we do a good job in learning and well-being, students, children are able to contribute. They're able to contribute uh, in their personal lives. They're able to contribute in the workplace. They're able to contribute in their communities. And I think that's a nice piece. There has to be a reason why we do those things together. Why is it important that we look at learning and well-being together? It's so that students can walk out of our education systems with a purpose and a meaning. Yeah, and I think that is so, so critical because for a long time we haven't understood the why. And I think, you know, you talk about Simon Sinek's talking about his why, and it's really interesting because I was leaving Australia when the, um, when the pandemic really started to hit and I had to return quickly to the States. And as I was flying back, I was thinking, how can I contribute to the world? Like, I'm not a very good doctor, as a medical doctor. I don't like blood very much. I'm not very good to be able to help with a pandemic. So how can I contribute my skills to the world at the moment? So as I was flying back, I was thinking, what could I do to contribute? So part of the work I've been doing while the, while the pandemic has been on is I've created what's called the Contribution Kit, which you can access on my website at The Learner First. And there are 10 modules in there. And that, will, that aligns beautifully with the, with the book that we've just written. And we did this as part of, and, and we, are, we have aligned it to the book as well, because I think what it does is there's this practical tools in there that help you to understand how to do, how to work towards contribution. 
And with those four outcomes, there's a little unit on each one of those. It has some questions to spark people's thinking. It has some tools of assessment that you can assess with as well. But then also what we did after that was with those four outcomes, we added some units or some modules that would help with bringing that all together in a classroom. So those four are the individual outcomes for kids. And then we added a module that had cultural well-being. How do you bring it all together in a classroom? Then we looked at what were the teacher capabilities you would need to be able to do all of this. So there is a, a module there for teachers on that. There's a, uh, a planning template for collaborative inquiry, contrib- sorry, contributive inquiry, how you would actually do this. And I've used that contributive inquiry template with a whole district on how to, how to um, reopen schools together and they go back in the summer. Um, I've also created one on collaborative, inqu- uh, collaborative moderation, which actually helps you to look at what happens when you can do this successfully with one student and then lift it up to a classroom level. Then one on how to form a change team, which, which works at a student level, a class level, a school level and a community level. And then the last one, the last module we created was meaning and fulfillment, and that gives you the why. And because why, why I did the why at the very end was because what happened was I found that people had forgotten themselves so much that we had to build up again as to why would we do this. And so, so starting off right at self-understanding for teachers first, and then this goes all the way through, and then it goes back down to the students again. So it gives, gives teachers an opportunity to remember themselves, to be well first themselves, and a system well first, and then goes back down to the students again. It's really helpful, Jojo, for for teachers or or school leaders or district leaders to have the book that kind of gets them into the concept of this, but to have those follow-up tools, that contribution kit, uh, I think will be really helpful as people try to put this into place. One of the things that you talk about is, you know, the, the, the title of the book is a change team guide to contributive learning. And um, I can certainly see your beginnings from the work that you did in New Zealand and how you see that idea or the, the concept of a change team. Tell us what a change team looks like at a school level. The change team is probably one of the most powerful tools I think I've ever seen in a school ever. And I, and I say that with huge respect for the change teams that have, that have worked with me and have, and have been created. What they do is that it's it's started by um, we have a, the principals on the change team and then whoever is the most relevant people from that point on. But usually we have people from, we have teachers that are, are change leaders across the school. So that doesn't necessarily mean they're in a leadership position. They're people who, who, who are change leaders and they know who they are in the school. We have students in the change team and they're students who are ones that whose voices we've not usually heard. So they're not usually the, the leaders of change in the school because what we want to do is hear from students who have not always got what they need. And we bring in three or four of them so that they feel comfortable talking together. We have parents in the community who, again, who, whose voices we've not always heard. And again, we use the, the theory that we need two or three together so that they feel comfortable talking. We also bring in community members. Um, some communities have a strong religious um, um, area, so we have people from their faith-based religions. Um, some have a very strong business area, so we bring in businesses, not for money, but for the thought leadership and the community connection. And we meet every two weeks for a couple of hours, and, and we're really strong on this. And what we do is we use the tools to go through the, the two or three areas that I've already talked about. So we look at what are the conditions that's going on in the school are the conditions that we need right for what's happening. And we're usually looking at sort of the five capability areas. One of them is around, does everybody have the same picture of what's happening in the school? Do we have, do we know who the kids are that are needing support? Do we have the right professional development going? Do we all understand what's really happening in our school? Secondary, we look at is, do we have 
the right relationships and, and partnerships with parents and teachers and kids? Do we have the right connections and relationships happening? And we have, again, a rubric that helps us to figure this out. Another one we look at is, are we measuring the right assessments? Do we have the right assessments in place and are we really measuring what matters? And if not, what are we doing about it? Another area we look at is, uh, do we have high expectations and beliefs for every single student in the school? And and how are we relating to them and how are we are ensuring that, that that's really occurring? Um, and then are we, and, and so we're looking at all of those. So we're looking at the conditions and then we're also looking at the design tools. What, what, how are we redesigning our learning and teaching and our assessments to make sure that they're working? And then we're also looking at the outcomes of the kids. How are we measuring our self-understanding, connection, knowledge and competency to make sure that it's happening? But the trick that we have, which I think is really, really um, significant, is that we're only doing one of each of those things at a time. So each teacher is only looking at one or two students. Each teacher is only looking at one unit or one assessment. And each, each school is only looking at one condition or one system change at a time. Because my, my theory is, is that we just can't do everything at once. So let's just go slowly through it. But what happens is as we go slowly through this, we understand it at such a deep level and we, get the, we, we understand how to make the change and we deeply do the change and we deeply see it and we moderate it and figure it out, that when the change happens, so many other things change at the same time because we just get it. So we're not racing through change. We're doing it at a deep understanding level and we're really all, the whole school and the community is understanding the why so that so many other things ripple effect change at the same time that it's the, the change is so significant that it doesn't take long for a lot to change. And some of the data I have on the outcomes for kids on their you know, standardised testing as well, um, as all the other significant changes, is phenomenal and in a very short space of time because the way we do the change is quite different because we're doing it together, collaboratively, collectively, and we're in sync with each other and a deep understanding of the why. And so we have a change team in the school and then we have one at the district and if we're lucky enough, we have one at the state level too or the country level. I like the idea, Jojo, of going deeply because by going deeply, teachers get to see the actual changes that are happening with the students. And there's nothing more motivating for teachers. We've all worked with thousands of teachers and we know that every single one of them wants the very best for their for their students. And there's nothing more motivating is when they make a deep change like that, it has an impact. They see the impact on the kids and they just want to do more of that. And the second thing is that once you've gone through that deep look at how you're doing work, um, you know, whether it's the principal, the teacher, the support staff, etc. Once you've taken that deep look and you, and you know what that looks like, it's easy for that um, process to be transferable to the, to the next piece of work that you're looking at. So it's not just that you improve in this one narrow area. You, what you mm-hmm. learn through that process is transferable to other areas that you, you, you challenge mm-hmm. the next time. It's a bit like John Hattie talking about going from surface to deep and, and when we're doing it properly and when we're, doing, when we're really learning about how this change works and we're really understanding it deeply, teachers get it too and they see the change and they understand it and they can do it next time. If we're just doing the surface change and we're rapid, racing rip, rapidly through it, they don't get it and they don't see the why and they don't understand how to do it when they're actually a part of the change because what happens is when the change team meets, everybody who's on the change team then goes back out into their particular area of responsibility and they read they redo that meeting again with the people that they're responsible for. So it's like a dandelion effect that we're just continuously doing the deep dive in the meeting, then it goes out into the next meetings out. So everybody is just redoing it, redoing it, redoing it until every last person gets it. 
And in that, that way, we've got this sort of real depth of depth of understanding that is just, it's phenomenal. And, and as you say, it just, it's like, it's like, ah, everyone's got time to digest it and see it and feel it and taste it and, and see the success in the kids' faces and the teachers' faces. There's joy, there's joy in change then because it's, they're a part of it and they own it. And so when somebody owns the change, you can't take it away from them. It's theirs for life. Whereas when it's told to them and given to them and they have to do it, there's no ownership and there's no desire to do it and they don't see any point in it. So therefore it's just another failed change process. Whereas this is real, this is real and theirs and it belongs to them. It's fun because they can see the joy in it. I know sometimes you work with individual schools, but I also know that you work with, you know, entire districts or clusters of schools within that district. And what I found interesting is that you have a a multi-layer approach. So you have a change team at the school level and you've talked about what that looks like. What does it look like up at a district or a regional level when you have multiple schools involved? I know you, what I like about it is that you have a change team at that level as well. So they're living um, a similar experience but obviously at a different level of the organization. What does that change team look like? The way it works at a system level is that, or, or district and status that we'd have. So what we do is we have somebody who is from my team works with each change team across the district. So I'd have a, a learner first person would be on each change team as their, as their change catalyst. I call them change catalysts. And the reason that we have somebody on as an outsider coming in is because some of the stuff we do is quite hard and some of the conversations are quite hard and and what what it does is it protects the whole school and the system to allow them to have those tough conversations and the person who does all that hard change work can walk away and they can be left in safety and um, because they can blame the change person and what happens is that that change person then they go to all the different schools and they they host those meetings and then they, they then we then sort of meet together and then we have another person who does the change team meeting who sits at the district level. And so the, the person at the district level hosts a change team meeting with the district leadership team. And what happens is somebody from the district leadership team sits on each of those change team meetings as well. Now, they're not there as the boss. What they do is they're there as a thought leader and they don't necessarily enjoy going to those meetings because it's another meeting that they have to go to. And, and often the district staff don't want to go to, to begin with because they 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 they... Again, it's another meeting. They, they don't necessarily see the value in it. And, and what we ask is that every single person in the district leadership team goes to a school and becomes part of a change team meeting. So the first six months, they don't necessarily enjoy the process, but by the end of that six months, they are saying they are identifying the needs and the changes that that school needs to have support in that they would never have seen before. So what it becomes is an eye-opening experience. And, what I'm, and I'm not saying that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have identified it, but they see it in a very different light. And what it does is it becomes a personal experience for them and they become, they create a personal relationship with the school. And what I've identified is that that personal relationship makes the world of difference. And it's not because they don't know what's going on. It just means that they have a connection which changes the relationship. And I go back to my four outcomes. When you have a connection and you have knowledge and you have a different understanding, it changes the way we behave. So what happens is their relationship shifts. They then start to advocate for the schools and then some of the policies change. So their job is to make way or anything that they learn at that school to have, to move barriers at the district to engage, to allow the, whatever those kids need at that school to happen. So they shift policies to enable kids who need what they need to get what they need. And what we see is that policies change, um, funding shifts direction, um, timetables change, bus routes change, simple things like one district I was working with, 
um, some year 12s or grade 12 students couldn't graduate one year because they couldn't take a math class because one of the high schools wasn't offering it that year. And so one of the questions I just simply said was, well, couldn't you just bust them to another school? And they had never thought about that because they weren't communicating with each other because each school was in a different isolated bubble. Another school was a, uh, another school was a um, bilingual school but didn't have any testing in Spanish. But they didn't know that they could ask the district for that or there was a block in communication. So really simple things that were really making huge effect for kids that districts don't know about, uh, communication errors, things like that that just need to be cleaned up really quickly. But change teams can sort out because people can be really honest and fast. And things that, that we would think are little tiny things in a normal day can be cleaned up incredibly quickly. I think from a teacher's perspective, I think it is um, reassuring to them to know that their district leaders or their regional leaders are embarking on a similar process. You know, that kind of we're, we're all in it together. Um, I think that's just a, a really nice sentiment from a district leaders or a regional leaders perspective, they get an opportunity to hear and see what's happening on the ground in a similar process. I mean, superintendents and assistant superintendents and, uh, and policy people, they often come and visit schools. It's not that they're not in schools, but mm -hmm. being involved in a very similar process, I think just helps to surface some things that like you say, may end in some um, quick fixes uh, from an operational standpoint or some deeper policy changes. And, uh, and that's helpful. Jojo, just a, a final comment. This podcast series is designed for senior education leaders, uh, school leaders, district leaders, policy people. Um, have you got any advice for them? I think my advice for senior leaders is to do some work on yourself first. I think, I think for me, learning about who I am and really being true to myself and, and honoring my own culture, honoring my own identity, honoring my own language has allowed me to be the best leader I can be. If I try to be somebody else, I'm a terrible leader. And I think that, that many of us in, in, in leadership positions, we try and emulate other leaders and we think that they're doing a great job. But the very best leader you can be is you. And when you are yourself, you are the best leader you can be. And just be honest to the people that you're leading and talk to them and hear them and, and honor who they are and honor the place that you're at and honor the knowledge that they hold, honor the love that they hold, and just generally care for them because they are the people who are entrusting you to lead them and you be you. And when you are, you are the most amazing leader in the world. Thanks to Jojo for joining our podcast today and for sharing her book and helping us to enter the world of contributive learning. The future can indeed look bright. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in some of the other opportunities to hear from Jojo on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. She's a regular host on our SEL Global Leadership Series, which is in partnership with Karanga and Salzburg Global Seminar. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.